Welcome to Your Cyber Path, the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job by sharing the secrets of experienced hiring managers and top cybersecurity professionals with you. Now, on to the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Your Cyber Path. I'm Kip Boyle. And today I'm here actually without Jason Dion, who is typically here uh, to, you know, to share what he knows with you, but he's taking a well-deserved vacation. So we're pressing on uh, with the next episode. This is episode 83, and uh, the working title is Automating the NIST Risk Management Framework. And we've got a guest who actually works with the uh, Risk Management Framework a lot and has some uh, some insider knowledge on a particular tool that uh, sort of advertises itself as as a way of automating uh, the risk management framework. Uh, her name is Rebecca Anasconich, and I hope the heck I said that right, good <laughs> Rebecca. So welcome. We're so glad you're here. Would you please tell the audience a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah. Hey. Thanks, Kip. Thanks for having me. Um... So as you mentioned, I do work with the risk management framework, um, particularly at this point in time, I'm working specifically in the Department of Defense. Um, so most of my work is the Department of Defense's interpretation of the RMAP process. Um, I have worked in the federal agencies for quite a bit um, of years, but now I'm in the, back in the DOD. Um, I started working in this space long before it was ever called the RMF process. So I've been in um, DOD security compliance and information assurance for well over 20 years. So I've seen it transition um, from very much paperwork process to where we're getting to this point of trying to automate the, the security um, configuration and compliance requirements. I, I, again, I'm really happy you're here because you're bringing a real depth of ex, of expertise to this topic for the benefit of of our audience. And um, yeah, I, I I recall uh, my first experiences working uh, kind of in this space when I was on active duty in the Air Force. And uh, let's just say it was pr it was primitive <laughs> compared to what we're you know attempting to do now. Um, well, listen, everybody. As a reminder, we've covered what RMF is in depth back in episode 80. So I'm going to do a, a quick recap, but if you want to really go into RMF as far as well, what it is and what does it require, I really encourage you to go back to episode 80 and, and listen to that. But just, just to give you a, a thumbnail sketch in case you haven't listened to that episode or it's been a while, um, RMF provides a process that integrates security, privacy, and cyber supply chain risk management activities all into a systems development life cycle. And there's seven steps in the process. So I'll recap them now. And uh, Rebecca, you can, you can chime in and, and you know, tell me if I get any of this wrong, because I know you have more experience with it than I do. But, uh, but the first step is you have to prepare your organization to manage security and privacy risks. The second step is you have to categorize your system and the information that it processes, stores, and transmits. The third step is you got to uh, get into NIST Special Publication 800-53, which is a catalog of controls, and you have to select the ones that are going to help you reduce risk. Step number four is you implement the controls and you document how they're deployed. Step number five is you assess to determine if the controls are in place, that they're operating as they're supposed to, and that you're getting the correct results from them. Step number six is a senior official then is asked to make a risk-based decision 
to authorize the system to operate, you know, to become a production system. And then the seventh step is to continuously monitor uh, the implementation of your controls and to make sure that the, the risks to your system stay uh, reasonable. What do you think, Rebecca? Was, was, that a, was that an okay summary? That was perfect, yes. Okay, great. All right. So now what I want to do is I want to really get into uh, the essence of, of this episode, which is to talk about using a particular tool to, to automate some of this work, because there's a lot to do here. And when we were doing pre-show prep, uh, Rebecca was, was, was saying to me, you know, Kip, uh, this tool called EMAS, it probably doesn't automate as, as much as people might think, which is kind of surprising to me. I haven't used EMAS, but uh, Rebecca, I was hoping you could kind of unpack that a little bit and tell people, you know, what does that mean? Yeah, so EMAS does uh, definitely support the framework in walking through the actual RMF process. Um, and you can do things like when you put your system into EMAS, um, once you have a hardware list and a software list and you do your Nessus vulnerability scanners, you do your security technical implementation guide or your stick checklist, you can import that data into EMAS and then it will correlate those findings. So let's say that you run an ACAS scan and there is a vulnerability associated with the software um, or a piece of hardware. Uh, it will associate that security control with that piece of software um, as a non-compliant item. Mm. Um, but it's not going to actually do things like write all of your security documentation for you on how you do identity and authentic identification and authentication. You've actually got to do that work to put it into EMAS. I see. Okay, so maybe maybe EMAS would be better characterized as just like a data store and just a way to organize yourself. Do you think that's a more accurate description of what it does? Yeah, it does definitely keep um, all of your data, all of your system identification information, like your, you do security categorization in there. So we're talking step one, preparing. That's when we build our system in EMAS. Um, when we start to move it, or step zero, prepare, step one. Um, we start to look at actually getting our team together. That's when we assign all of the individuals EMAS. Mm. Uh, and then we, you know, add things like our system name, start looking at how, you know, what version are we working on? What network is it going on? Um, and then when we move into that categorization phase, EMAS does a very good job of helping us categorize our system and based on the NIST special location 860 volume two, and then select our security controls from there. Okay. Okay. So EMAS is helpful, I guess, is my takeaway from this part of our conversation. Um, and so it's worth us, you know, spending some more time on the episode now to, you know, kind of understand it a little bit better. And I suppose I should probably stop at this point and tell people that EMAS <clears throat> is an acronym and it actually stands for Enterprise Mission Assurance Support Service. I'm sure, Rebecca, you probably have other names for it, <laughs> probably in, frust in frustration, but that's, that's, I think that's the, the proper name. Um, so uh, let, let's talk about how you use RMS in your work before we really start talking about EMAS, because my understanding is you know, uh, RMS and EMAS are uh, kind of a one-size-fits-all sort of a thing, but um, not everybody's doing the same kind of work at the same scale. Uh, so how do you use RMF and, and, uh, and, and let's, let's start there. Yeah. So, um, I come from a tactical world, so I come from a 
we've got a mission coming up. It starts on Sunday. We have to get a system authorized and out to the field for a, a military user. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we use RMF in that process, it's much more agile. It's how to be adapted to be flexible. Um, and it's all mission focused. And when we start looking at system categorization, uh, it's more based not only just around confidentiality, integrity, and availability, but we are also looking at the mission aspect of that. Um, so when you start thinking about things like, um, <laughs> like weapon systems, um, uh, IoT, you have very unique requirements in those systems where they can't necessarily implement what would be selected from a baseline categorization from a CI perspective. So that's when tailoring comes in. Tailoring is a huge part of the control selection process that, in my experience, a lot of people forget that RMF is a framework mm. that is to be adapted by organizations and it provides the executive leadership in those organizations to make um, decisions on how they're going to adapt that framework for their systems and their missions. And that's really what's left out a lot in the DOD's implementation and interpretation of the RMF. Hmm, is this tailoring aspect that, that people are expected uh, to, to adapt the RMF to their specific situation, is that right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, and I would think that especially newer people to RMF would would actually find that maybe a little bit intimidating or maybe a little bit like scary because it's like, no, I want a checklist. What do you mean it's not a checklist, right? I mean, uh, do you think that's part of maybe what's going on? Yeah, and like you, um, I was Air Force before I enlisted and everything is standard operating procedure, TTP, we follow a checklist, you don't deviate from the checklist because our safety concerns, there's mission concerns. So when we talk cybersecurity and RMF and it being such um, an interpretable process, it's very difficult for us to kind of adapt our mindset to be able to say, wait, we can actually critically think about the system design aspects, the security requirements, the mission, the users, and put all that together and as a team, sit down and decide what is the tailoring aspects of the system, um, the baseline and the tailored controls, and then get that authorizing official or that AO's buy-in very early so we design the system where it is not over-engineered from a security perspective, but is also protecting the, the data, the users, and the mission. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you think there's a risk that as people try to tailor RMF for their situation that um, that they might make some big mistakes as far as like they might leave things out that they really shouldn't leave out. I mean, is there a lot of risk, uh, you know, that people are really going to mess up the tailoring? Yes, tailoring is one of those things. And that's why we have such a hard time with it, the DOD. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have seen instances where things have been tailored out that actually increase the risk to the user on the system. And that has to be sent to the authorizing official to help make that determination. Um, because there is a cost to all of this, right? Yeah. And especially as someone who's worked as, you know, a security manager, security engineer, we don't think costs, we don't think budget, we don't think schedules. Um, and that's where we're having a pretty large disconnect in the DOD is that we have our main area of expertise and our focus and we're concerned on securing data, connections, users. Um, risk, I mean, uh, cost and schedules, that 
that's program managers, that's program office, that's not our concern. And that's where we, we really start to disconnect in the DOD. Okay. Um, this is so helpful. I mean, I think for anybody who hasn't worked with RMF for very long, um, or maybe they have and they just find it really frustrating, I would hope this conversation would be really helpful to them to get them grounded, right, on how you actually do this stuff. I'm interested, though, Rebecca, would you would you kind of tell us how you got into uh, RMF? Like, you know, where did this where did RMF start for you? Because to your point, you know, you started doing this work before RMF came along. But, uh, you know, how did how did you how did you and RMF meet? Um, yeah, I was actually military intelligence and um I took a, an assignment working for Central Command, and I got into it when it was still called information assurance. I mm. um, said so before the cybersecurity terminology. I remember but, that. Yes. So back in the pre-DITSCAP, then DITSCAP, and then DICAP days, and then actually I got into RMF when I separated from the Air Force and started working for the federal agencies. Mm -hmm. And so they were already following the 800-37 framework at that time. And so I had to learn their process and how they do things. Um, and then once I learned that and the, the DOD switched to the 85-1001 under the RMS, um, I started getting a lot more clients who were Selling to the DOD who needed to understand this new RMF process and how to secure and sell to the to the Department of Defense. Ah, okay, okay. Well, and, and, you know that's another interesting story that I would love to talk with you about. Probably not during the episode today, but uh, but I think what you're what what you said is that you're actually a business owner, right? That you that you kind of launched your own uh, company in order to in order to help, uh, but from a civilian point of view, is that right? That's correct. Yes. And you know what? I don't see a lot of people who leave the military who start their own businesses. I think that's a, a fairly uh, uncommon thing. That's that's what I did eventually. But it, it took me a while to get there. But I just want to congratulate you for taking uh, the road less traveled. So I just think it's really cool. Um, yeah, you're welcome. So let's let's move on. Let's continue to uh, unpack this. You know, how does RMF you know, work in, in the real world? Um, and I think a big part of that is something you said earlier, which is, okay, well, we've got RMF, it's documented, we have to tailor it, but it's kind of a one-size-fits-all thing. It doesn't really anticipate, you know, every uh, use case. But so how do you actually use it, right? How do you make the best use of it, given that it's such a slippery kind of thing? So right now I'm uh, in a situation that I am actually starting to help the acquisition community. Mm -hmm. so, so the acquisition community puts on government contracts um, the requirements for security, right? Mm -hmm. And typically in the past, it would, it would be, you have to comply with DOD 851001. Well, okay, that's a very, <laughs> very large assumption is made there that anyone even understands the instruction to begin with and then how to interpret it and how to, you know, select their um, baseline and then tailor. So mm -hmm. what we've been working on recently is... Developing acquisition language so that when it gets something gets put on contracts, the contractor, the integrator, the developer, even a small business like me, I understand exactly what I'm selling to the government. Because I, I mean, something as simple as encryption type that I have to build into software can vastly change the cost, right? So if I have to bring in someone that understands a, a type two encryptor versus a fix or 40 encryption mechanism, um, the 
the cost of that type of engineer varies significantly yeah. the amount of time it'll take to develop. So actually getting into the acquisition cycle is going to be key to actually being able to implement RMF correctly across the DOD. Mm. And right now there's a lot of, I don't want to say animosity, but there is quite a bit of frustration with the RMF process in the DOD. And I really think that's because the way that when it was rolled out, it was the way it was trained uh -huh. to all of the security managers. It was very much checklist mentality. Let's categorize the system. No real tailoring was implemented. And it was a very rigid interpretation of the framework. Uh. So we're kind of our own worst enemies, right? Going back to a previous part of our conversation where we were talking about how necessary it is to tailor it, but that our, the dominant culture is to not do that. The dominant culture is to, is to be very rigid and to follow checklists. And what I'm hearing you say is, yeah, that's actually how they trained us to do it, which is not very enabling of the intent. And uh, yeah, so I could see a lot of people would be frustrated uh, by that for sure. Um, so, okay. So is that how you were trained? And, and, you know, how did you, how did you work through that to be able to use RMF the way it was uh, intended versus the way you were trained? Uh, I think that for me, um, uh, I think it was my leadership mm -hmm. and the, the, the fact that I come from a tactical environment, it was fast moving. Our leadership all the way up the chain understood that Security is a priority, but also mission effectiveness is a, is a higher priority. So we yeah. trying to balance those two things. We were able to have those very open conversations as to, okay, that's fine. We don't have time to acquire this encryption that we need, or we don't have time to implement this, you know, AV solution. Um, and if you want to field it, that's a risk and we have to understand what are the consequences of those risks. And so having a leadership, um, having the leadership in place that understood that we could make these trade-offs, but we needed to understand what we were trading off to ensure that we are doing our due diligence to protect the data, the users, and the missions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in other words, uh, my, you know, my interpretation of what you just said is, well, I went and got this training on RMF, and then I went to the real world. <laughs> and, and the real world said, mm, we have to do a little, you have to do things a little differently because real world, right? We've got to balance all these competing priorities. And at the, at the end of the day, we've got to accomplish the mission, right? Whatever that takes. And so uh, those, those are the real world, you know, kind of trade-offs that, that a person has to make. So, um, yeah, so I guess maybe something that I would say to people is if you're learning RMF or maybe you've already been through the training and you're struggling with it, uh, what I'm hearing is, you know, lean into the reality of the situation that you're in and, you know, draw what you can from RMF, but don't be such a slave to RMF that you can't get your mission accomplished. Do you, is that like a reasonable way to kind of summarize what you were saying? Yes, it is. Oh, and the one thing I'm always very adamant about telling people is, 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 is make sure you're truthful. So even when you're putting together like your security plan, if you're not doing something, annotate it in there, document it, be truthful, you know, do a risk analysis on it, determine what risks it bring to the system um, and how, what are some of the mitigations that can be put into place? Um, and then document all of that so you can communicate that up to leadership because as you 
mentioned earlier, that authorizing official has to sign off on it. And they need to actually understand the reality of the situation, right. not a clouded view. Yeah. And it's not reasonable to expect an authorizing right. official to really even understand RMF, is it? I think, um, yes. I mean, a part of their training to be an authorizing official, they're supposed to actually take training in the RMF process. And those that I have worked with recently are pretty aware of the RMF process and, and frustrated with it, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it is holding up some progress. It is making um, the system development life cycle take longer. Yeah. Okay. And from my experience, that's all that all that hold up is in the middle tier. It's, it's all of those middle, the, the leadership, they want to be able to make those decisions quickly. They want to be able to move quickly. Um, but we're holding it up in the middle with this whole checklist mentality problem mm. we're having. Okay. Right. And you'd mentioned that before. Now, uh, in DOD anyway, you uh, had told me previously when, you know, when we were talking about, you know, uh, the episode here, we're doing our preparations and you said DOD has uh, some initiatives to try and address these issues and to actually revise um, RMF. What, what are you seeing? Yeah, we're seeing what's called RMF 2.0. We're seeing the fast track RMF or fast track ATO. We're seeing um, continuous ATO. So depending on where you're at in the DOD, it's being called a different name. But really, if you kind of peel all the layers to it, what it means is do very good system security engineering, design systems that can be continuously monitored, monitor those systems, monitor the risk, continue to report that risk up, and then your ATO should continue um, to flow. Mm, okay. Now let's define that term for a moment, ATO, because I don't think we've defined it yet, but we've been using it. So what's ATO? So your ATO is your authorization to operate. So in, for the DOD, it's what allows you to take a system and actually use it as a DOD entity. So whether that's a standalone system or it's connected to some type of network or cloud environment. Okay. Okay. Got it. So what's, do you have a, a, a uh, an opinion of your own as far as, you know, RMF 2.0, fast track ATO, continuous ATO. Do you think that they're headed in the right direction in terms of addressing what the real, uh, you know, issue is with RMF and, and making it more useful? Um, I mean, any steps for an improvement are, are helpful, obviously. Um, some of those processes have kind of a subset of control in the beginning that are implemented. And then as you move through your ATO process, you implement more and more security controls. Mm -hmm. um, but really, a lot of that should have been done in the development life cycle. We're developing software um, or a system that has multiple pieces of software. We should have already done most of that. Um, so I think the initiatives are good. I don't think they're, you know, the final BL that'll get us to where we need to be. Um, I honestly believe that a lot of it is coming now to the training. Mm, okay. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. So again, it's not that RMF itself is so much of an issue. It's just, it's just the, the culture, the institution, right? Trying to evolve itself to this kind of, you know, more flexible approach. And uh, okay, well, that's, that's fascinating. And hopefully with time, uh, you know, that, that, you know, maybe maybe these two things will meet in the middle. RMF will change a little bit, and the culture will change a little bit, and we'll we'll be able to get someplace. Um, 
you know, one thing that I was uh, that I was curious about, and this is this is a little off the cuff question here to you, um, but I've been thinking about the difference between RMF and the NIST cybersecurity framework, and 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 you know, some people have said to me. Well, actually, they're kind of complementary. And I think to myself, well, they're definitely different. And so I suppose they could be complementary, um, whereas RMF is focused on the you know, development lifecycle and the cybersecurity framework is really more about uh, an, an incident orientation. So do you think that the NIST cybersecurity framework would be a good way to, uh, to do step seven, the continuously monitor uh, step in RMF or, or, you know, how do you think about the way these two frameworks uh, kind of fit up to each other? Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely have their place. They're both a little bit different from each other, but they do complement each other. And I do think that I am actually seeing more entities in the DOD start looking at the CSF, um, so the Zamish Security Framework, and how to bring that into that continuous monitoring phase. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you do think that that that's a natural touch point for these two frameworks is is that step seven continuous monitoring? Okay, thanks, I appreciate that. I was I was I was trying to figure that figure that out for myself. Um, all right, so let's see. Uh, you know, when we were doing show prep, you had mentioned a few other things that I think our audience would really uh, would really benefit uh, from hearing about, which is um, some examples around. Um, you know, some of the difficulties of legacy systems in RMF um, and, you know, the fact that you've got systems that are no longer in a development state, right? They've, their development is finished and, and maybe they'll never be enhanced again. And yet you're still expected to use a SDLC style approach to uh, achieving approval to operate. What's, what's that been like for you? How do you deal with a situation like that? Um, it's been a, a struggle for everybody involved, right? So we have systems in the DoD that are, I mean, designed and deployed in the '60s, the '70s, uh, or back when they're not even knew. running on. Exactly. <laughs> um, so a lot of them are still running on the platform, and so when you take something that can only take a six-digit password, mm-hmm. and you try to say, "Well, you have to put a 14-character password on it," how much development? expense you put in finding a developer first of all and then i mean are you actually improving the security of that system is it really a necessary requirement for that system and a lot of that as we're going through and that's where i think the training problem is coming into play because those that are saying okay you have to come to my organization as a security controls assessor and i'm doing your independent assessment and you only have a six character password or even pin on your system, you fail. Well, do you really fail if the system isn't capable of doing that? Mm. Um, and so that is where we're really struggling in the DoD is that kind of, that's why I said earlier, that middle tier where I have to send my system to an assessor and was no idea fool. You know, they're right out of college, maybe they're a new airman. This is a new position and I'm trying to explain. And that's why it's very important that in that documentation, you say, you know, you clearly state the system is, you know, legacy. It can't support fourteen character password. And it's a very simple example. That's right. Very true, but um, oh, oh, it is. And you know, Rebecca, uh, as you talk about this, I'm reminded of some experiences I've had in the private sector, where I had a customer who was uh, going through a payment card industry data security standard 
uh, audit, right? Because they wanted to conform to the PCI DSS. And similar things, uh, this was a while ago, but you know, there would be a mainframe computer that was processing credit card transactions and it was legacy. And you know, it, there, it just couldn't, you know, whether it was a password or just some other things, it just could not perform to all of the requirements in PCI DSS. And so we had to figure out how to create compensating controls and do other things in order to meet the intent of the requirement, knowing that the requirement itself was not going to be met in a very, uh, you know, uh, inside that system. And so I, that sounds very similar to what you said. Does it, does, do you, I mean, right? Absolutely. That's the okay, thing, isn't it? Bam, that everyone's having the problem. Medical communities having it. Um, anybody that is trying to meet a compliance standard that is built on modern development processes and platforms are having the same issue. Right. Okay. So, uh, so listen, for anybody out there who has experience working in PCI DSS or HIPAA or what have you, where you're trying to take a framework and you're trying to, uh, you know, get a, a legacy system to conform to it, well, if you come over to RMF, welcome to the party, because it sounds like it's going to just be more of the same. Um, RMF does another thing too, which I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, these days we talk about advanced persistent threats and we talk about zero trust and those things really bring up this idea of assume breach, right? As a philosophy, right? Because for so long, we've been in this mindset that we're assuming that a system is not breached so we can build nice walls around it, right? And keep it pure. But we, we realize that that's just not the way the world works anymore. But, I, I, but during the show prep, you were saying, yeah, unfortunately, RMF kind of hasn't really caught up to the reality of assume breach. It, did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. So it doesn't, it's not looking at advanced persistent threat. So that's why in the DOD, and not to throw us off track at all, but we are really starting to look at resiliency and survivability. Okay. Um, of the stones. And, and that's NIST cybersecurity framework is really designed around resilience and, 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 and I don't know that they ever use the term assume breach in there exactly, but they certainly do emphasize the fact that, you know, it's not all about prevention, that you have to detect, respond to recover as well and be prepared to do those things and as fast as you can, because that really matters in terms of being able to, to survive. Okay, so <laughs> now we get to the part that we really, really uh, we're aiming at, which is EMAS, right? What is EMAS? Who should use it? And what are its limitations? What are the things that are really good about it? So, hi, Rebecca, I'm new. What's EMAS? So the first thing to understand about EMAS is it is a, what we call a government off the shelf system. So you can't go and buy it from a commercial vendor. It is developed for the DOD by DOD contractors available to DOD users on DOD systems. Um, so if you were, you know, an integrator or a small business trying to use EMAS or, you know, learn, teach yourself how to use it, you can't do that. It has to be from a DOD network. Um, and so really what it does is it helps walk you through the seven steps. Um, okay. So you start by registering your system and it's very um access control oriented uh, restrictions are pretty tight around uh, permissions mm -hmm. um so like right now one of my organizations i work with is very small um there are two of us and so we have to get multiple roles in emas to be able to do all the jobs and work 
the system through the process. So are you having to log out and log back in depending on what step you're trying to accomplish? Is it that? No, they're, they're, they're able to actually give you the permissions under one account, oh, thankfully. <laughs> but it's very permission-based, um, which it obviously should be, right? We're trying to prevent me from being able to say, oh, I'm doing this you know, for this control and I do it really well. And, oh, let me just go ahead and assess myself. You know, you got to have a separation of duty. Right, right. Yeah, listening to you talk about using EMAS when you're such a small organization makes me think about uh, like a maybe like a two-person startup who says, let's use Salesforce for our CRM. <laughs> you know, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> that, that's a highly scaled system and probably not the best place for you to start. Um, when I talk with mid-market companies about doing different things for cybersecurity, uh, sometimes they'll say to me, well, what if we get, you know, XYZ product because, you know, uh, that's very popular and all the big companies use it. And I say, you know, uh, I understand why you say that, but it, that's, that's kind of like putting your 14-year-old son into his dad's suit and sending him off to, you know, the junior high dance, it's really not going to work. <laughs> it's just, you know, that suit was never designed for such a small kid. He's going to look silly. And, uh, and, and worse yet, I mean, it's, it can be so expensive to use something that's been sized beyond the scale that you're operating at. And so what I'm hearing is, is that if you're a small organization, EMAS can kind of feel like you're wearing, you know, too big of a dress. <laughs> yeah. But on the other and if you are, so we work a lot with system of systems. I don't know if you've ever talked about that in any of your. I haven't. We haven't. Tell us what that is, please. So a system of systems is if you think about, think about Navy ships, a good example, right? It is a system. The ship is a system in its own, but there are thousands of systems on that ship that have to work together. Right. Um, some are standalone, some are working together, some are communicating back home. Um, but that is what we call a system of systems. These all have to work together. So EMAS doesn't do a great job of looking at risk across that entire enterprise of system of systems either. So it's really right in that mid-level development size of system that it works really well in. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So in my brain, I think of uh, like subsystems, right? You know, because you can't really operate right. a ship without all these subsystems and kind of how they integrate with each other. You know, if Jason Dion was here, he'd be all over this because as a person who is just retired from the Navy, he could probably tell us all kinds of really cool stories about, you know, how subsystems on ships don't work the way they're supposed to or what have you. Um, but let's get back to EMAS. So, okay, so what I'm hearing is EMAS is not something you can you can buy without a prescription. And I'm hearing that uh, EMAS is like kind of complicated and, uh, and, and a little difficult to kind of get your arms around. And that, that the only way you're gonna get into EMAS is if you apply to, the, to uh, somebody in the government, right? To issue you an account and they probably won't do that unless you've got some kind of contract you're working on. Is that about right? Yes, and typically you have to have a DOD CAC. So okay. It is CAC. Right. Okay, and that's a common access, how do you say, common access card? card. Okay, uh -huh. common access card, right. So that's like a smart card, is it not? Because when, when I, they didn't have these things when I was on active duty, so I've heard about them, but I've never actually had one. And is EMAS web-based or is it like a piece of software you install on your local computer? It is a web-based app. Yep. Okay. Okay. Got that. Okay. Cool. Um, and now, what else, what else about EMAS? About using EMAS? I mean, are there any 
like in your experience, any particular gotchas or tips or tricks? I mean, like, again, hi, Rebecca, I'm new. I'm using EMATS for the first time. What should I know? What else would you tell me so I can be successful? Um, so it's going to depend on when you come in and the life cycle of your system. Um, so if you come in new to an organization and all of their systems are already built in EMAS, uh, you're just, in your, let's say you already have an ATO, you'll be working on continuous monitoring. So there are requirements to review the security controls at a prescripted time. So let's say every three years, you're required to review your security policies. Every year, you're required to review your your access control rosters. Mm. So in EMAS, we actually go in there and validate that we are reviewed those. Um, but if you're building a new system in EMAS, you have to request the access. You've got to have somebody build the initial system for you. So let's say, you know, you have, your system is, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, new DOD system too. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then you sit down and you categorize the star and tailor it in there and then that gets approved and so once your we call it your security controls baseline tailored once that's been approved then you actually then the work starts okay the implementation right so you've got to write security policies you've got to have SOPs and TTPs you've got to know what we refer to as part in the system or you utilize the stigs the security technical implementation guides so you've got to have a software and hardware baseline and you put that into EMAS, actually. You will actually put in there, you know, I'm using, you know, this Dell version, this model, this is the OS that's running on it. This is the patch level the OS is on. Um, you put all of that information in there and you start to build your hardware and software list. You'll build what they call the authorization boundary. Okay. Uh, so you have to actually say, Here's all the components, hardware, software, firmware. Um, here's how they're connecting. Here's all my ports I'm using. Um, here's all the protocols we're using. Wow. So all of this data that supports the system security plan goes into EMAS, and you're essentially building your system security plan in EMAS. And, and this also sounds like a really heavy-duty configuration control sort of an approach too, right? Because I'm hearing you say, like, you're putting you know, all these component items, right, in there down to the patch level uh, and, and getting this all in there. And I can see why that would be an advantage, but I'm also just sort of uh, fatigued just thinking about, you know, all of the, all of the information that I'm gonna have to, you know, pound into, into EMAS. So fascinating. Well, then that actually brings up a question that I wanted to ask you as we get to the end of our episode today, which is, is there any risks to using EMAS to manage risks? Um, the, the number one concern right now, okay, now I'm putting all of my systems, all of the software, the versions, IP addresses, boundary diagrams, ports, protocols, services, how I'm authenticating my users, my encryption type. I'm putting every single design and system security engineering aspect into one web-based application, mm -hmm. which in itself has some vulnerabilities, right? That it's web-based. Um, now you want me to put all of that together along with everyone else's stuff. And really you have built a treasure chest for the adversary. Yeah. It's, it is a crown jewel with what piece of software on the web. Right. Huh, I wonder if anybody used EMAS to assess EMAS. <laughs> <laughs> I do know it has an ETO. Oh, well, that's good. 
Okay, so that's EMAS. I, I just a uh, quick question. Are there other ways that you can automate RMF or just make it easier for yourself other than EMAS? So um, Exacto is one of the tools um, that you'll see being used across the DoD. Um, the federal side has their own tools. So they have um, CCAM. I could not tell you what it stands for. Um, okay. So, and then some organizations develop their own internal um, systems where they'll use um, things like a SharePoint. Um, I've seen, you know, custom build workflow processes. I've seen CRM be leveraged to build a workflow process for this. Okay. So, so EMAS is really optional then is what I'm hearing uh, that there's other, that, you know, that, that RMF doesn't require you to use EMAS and that you can sort of bring whatever automation you'd like to the party. Is that right? Well, that was correct. Uh -huh. um, now it's starting. Now it's starting. More services are starting to require it. So across the Air Force, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, because um, like I mentioned, you know, RMF is an interpreter, pro interpretable process. So um, every community has kind of decided what tools and which processes they're going to use. EMAS is just DoD funded tool, um, and I do have a couple organizations I work with now who don't use EMAS, but they have been mandated to move to it and they are on a large initiative to move everything over to EMAS and they're very nervous about it. Okay. Okay. And I, probably in a couple of years, we'll be talking about, you know, uh, how, how everyone's using EMAS now and, you know, different sets of problems. So this really, the whole thing just really strikes me as a bit of a moving target, right? It's been moving for 20 years. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to cybersecurity because that's just sort of the nature of the beast, isn't it? Everything is, is always, is always moving. Well, we're running out of time, Rebecca, this has been a fantastic conversation. And I'm again, really thankful that you've uh, uh, decided to spend some of your valuable time talking with me today, making this, uh, recording this episode so that people can benefit from your, uh, your experience. Is there, is there anything else you want to uh, share just to like a final word uh, before we wrap up? Uh, my my biggest thing when it comes to cybersecurity, RMS, um, in the DoD is really, you know, do good system security engineering. Think through problems, do risk assessments, document the outcomes, and be honest. So we can our leadership can make the best decisions for their community. And we've really got to start looking one at training people better. And two, making more mission-focused decisions when it comes to um, cybersecurity and risk management okay. at the DoD. So putting the mission first and putting RMF and all these other things in a supporting role, not making them the point of the work that we do. I, I absolutely agree with that. Rebecca, if anybody wanted to contact you, uh, you know, after they listen to this episode, would that be okay? And how would you like them to do that? Absolutely. Um, and you can email me. It's Becca, B-E-C-C-A at iCyberI.com, um, International Cyber Institute. Um, that's probably the best way to get a hold of okay. me. Okay. And that's, and that's the name of your organization that you started, right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. I, I just think that's fantastic. I love, as a small business owner, I love meeting and talking to other small business owners. So, Thank you so much, Rebecca. You know, uh, everybody, as with every episode that we create, you can access a full transcript 
of everything we talked about right on our website. And all you have to do is put www.yourcyberpath.com forward slash, and then just put the episode number. This is episode 83. Just put 83 in your favorite web browser, and then you'll be able to actually pull up the page dedicated to this episode and access all the show notes and all of the, the transcript. It's a complete transcript. You can also sign up for my mentor notes. Now, if you don't know what mentor notes are, every two weeks I send out an email and I've about 500 words and I just kind of tell you something that's going on for those of you trying to get into cybersecurity, something that's going on that I think will help you. And uh, so it, I focus on being very short to the point and practical. Listen, give it a try. You can unsubscribe anytime. There's no trouble with that. If you go to yourcyberpath.com, you'll find the sign up there. So, you know, like I said, give it a try. But in any event, we're happy you were here. Thanks for listening. And we're going to see you next time in Your Cyberpath. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Your Cyberpath. Don't miss an episode. Press the subscribe button now. If you would like to learn more about how to get your dream cybersecurity job, then be sure to visit yourcyberpath.com where you can access the show notes, search the archive of our top tips and tricks, and discover some fantastic bonus content.